Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Friends Missing Friends. For today's episode, I talked to Izzy, she's a friend of a friend, and she's done a lot of research and wrote a thesis on how interactions with our loved one's body after they pass away affects our grieving and bereavement process. This is more scientifically oriented than most of my other episodes, so if that's not your jam, or if you're not in the head or heart space to uh, hear about the funeral industry or research about death and dying, I completely understand. When I talked to her, I learned a ton, and I was also at a place in my grief where it actually provided a lot of healing for me. I got to understand more of how not being able to see my friend's body after her passing affected my grief in the long term. So I hope you enjoy, and I hope you learn something new. Thanks for listening. Was it hard to find recent research on this? Or was it like, what? because I also heard that it's kind of not been studied till sort of recently, but then I could also see it being really obscure in the past yeah so. so a lot of the more experimental research I found was more recent the older works that I cited tended to be more historical references I did a lot of research into like historically how we used to treat our bodies and then also like different cultures how they treat their bodies so it was a lot of intersection between my initial psychological question, basically, and then Mm -hmm. having to take in anthropological data, having to take in historical data, having to take in, like, pathology, basically, and, and thinking, like, okay, you know, doesn't matter if a body's buried in a graveyard versus in a backyard, like, am I allowed to bury my body in the backyard? The answer is no, in most places, because Mm -hmm. it's considered a public health hazard. Um, Mm -hmm. Fun fact. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, it's just, it was a lot of, I thought it was going to be a lot of very like psychological, experimental research. But when I really started looking into it, I was, I I would, I don't want to say I was surprised, but I was very impressed by how many layers there are. Because you can't answer the question of, why do we care about what happens to the bodies of our loved ones? You can't answer that question without mm-hmm. considering the history, how we as humans evolved. I mean, going all the way back to prehistoric times to us at our very, very base evolutionary stages, you know, disposing of a body was vital to our survival as a species, because if we just kept them around with us they would be breeding grounds for diseases and parasites Mm -hmm. and it would it I mean it would have killed people it would have just killed more people (laughs) you can't live you know you can't have a bunch of decomposing bodies around you now granted there are cultures around the world that do tend to keep bodies closer for extended periods of time Mm -hmm. but they've developed techniques to ensure that the bodies um are essentially mummified um so they don't really decompose the same way But there's just so many things that have to be taken into consideration when you talk about death in general. There's no, you can't, you cannot isolate it as a concept. It is, 
it is about as far reaching as as something can get. Yeah, and it also like differs a lot based on different cultures around the world. This didn't you say like in Western society, it's uh, common now for like the funeral home like whisks away the body like almost immediately. Yeah. Is, is there a law on how quickly you have to give up the body? Um, I'm not sure if there's one overarching law. If I were to look into it, my best guess is that it's it's state by state legislation. That is a lot of death laws um, in the U.S. are contingent upon what state the body is in. But in, in American culture and in Western culture specifically, because the funeral industry has so much money behind it. Mm-hmm. It is just very strongly encouraged that families and loved ones just let the funeral home sort of take take the reins and take control and, you know, do what needs to be done, like, you know, preparing the body and stuff and putting it in the casket or the coffin or um, setting it up for viewings and everything like that. And then a lot of wakes are usually held at funeral homes as well. When in the past, like even within the last century or so, um, wakes used to be held primarily at the home. Um, the family would actually keep the body at the home and lay it out and um, hold the wakes there and then proceed to, to bring it to either the crematorium or the cemetery or wherever the body is going. Um, so it's it's a very different culture from what we were even a hundred years ago in the U.S. right now, and and it's I I personally believe that it's it's because of the multi billion dollar industry that is wow, billion yeah multi billion billion oh my god I don't know the exact I don't know the exact um, number but I do believe it is in the billions and when you think about it, it makes sense because it is constantly in demand. And especially with COVID, I'm sure that the numbers have gone up exponentially. What mm. with, you know, people dying a lot. Yeah. Um, and that's not to say that everybody involved in the funeral industry is inherently a bad person, but it's just that it is an industry. You know, there are people who are in it for the right reasons and there are people who do a really, really good job. Um, mm-hmm. at communicating with families and, and respecting their wishes and making sure they're open with them and really trying to help them. Yeah. And it's like when we were last talking, it's it's like I didn't even realize until I read more of your research how much capitalism has affected how we handle death and dying um, and mm-hmm. how... Um, like the funeral industry has made us much more separated from the body in ways that, yeah, might kind of like distance us from from that. I don't know if if you could mm-hmm. put that in your own words because <laughs> yeah. it's going to be more eloquent than what I just did. <laughs> but yeah, I not to sound like a raging communist or anything, but but capitalism has absolutely impacted the way we as a society and as a culture view and experience death and grief. And historically speaking, like I said, within the last hundred years, 
Um, there's been a huge shift in not only where people die, uh, but where the body goes after death. So in the early 1900s, death happened primarily in the home um, with the family. And the family was primarily responsible for taking care of the body, um, holding wakes. There were funeral homes that they could go to, and that was certainly an option. Um, but it's not like today where it is the only option, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and that has shifted rapidly to, you know, today where statistically most deaths happen in the hospital. Um, and bodies are not usually brought back home. When somebody leaves their home to go to the hospital um, and they die at the hospital, they don't come back. Their body mm. never comes back. There's no, um, there's not sort of that sense of ceremony or closure. Mm -hmm. um, and when a body dies or when somebody dies at a hospital and be, be, becomes a body, I guess, the body is then taken to the morgue and it's kept in the morgue and then the funeral home shows up and then the funeral home takes it to their morgue and they hold it there. And it's a lot of behind the scenes transfer of these people's bodies mm -hmm. that there are extended periods of time where the bereaved and, and the grieving families really don't know where their loved one is. And I, I witnessed that personally with my mother um, when my grandmother passed away because her funeral, she passed away here in DC, her funeral was held in New York. And there is a period of time where her body was being transported from DC to New York. And my mom has maintained that the hardest part of that entire ordeal of losing her mother was that period of time where she had no idea where she was. She knew she was somewhere between wow. New York and DC, but she did not know where she was. Wow, I didn't know that. It's so interesting that they don't involve the family more with that. A lot of the times the family has to really push to be involved. But of course, when you're grieving, you don't always think of that or you don't always right. know or you don't have the energy to really push for it and say, hey, I want this information. You know, you're given this, you're, you're told, okay, we're going to take them to here and you can meet us there at this time, but you have no idea where they go in between that. And, and that is incredibly distressing for most people, I would imagine. In your thesis, you also talk about primates behavior and how they often will groom the body or carry it around with them or um, interact with it basically and i think mm -hmm. other animals do that too like i think whales carry whales are another one um mother whales are known to to carry their dead calves around um it really hasn't been observed in adult whales like grieving other adult whales i think primarily because their bodies are too big and they just sort of sink but another another very prominent species that that's been observed in is uh, elephants. Oh, um, I love when elephants. when elephants pass away, um, their herd mates will oftentimes you know touch the body, 
interact with it, move on. But then because they're migratory, they'll usually take the same path for years. And if an elephant dies along that path, they will visit the bones of that elephant that has since passed and they'll touch the bones um, and usually stop at them for a bit. And, you know, it's really hard to, to say, oh, this proves that they're grieving because, you know, all it proves is that they're touching bones, you know, at a very, very base level, they're just exploring their environment. But it's not hard to infer that there mm-hmm. is some level of understanding going on there. Oh, yeah. That this is, you know, a family member that they cared about, a friend that they cared about who is now gone. Um, and they interact with the body to help solidify the fact that they are gone. Because evolutionarily speaking, it is not advantageous for us to stay in that state of of initial grief of that pure unadulterated sadness and sorrow um because that can be really debilitating yeah and a lot of the the primate research that has been done shows that you know once they they interact with the body of herd mate or clan mate or I don't know what a group of primates is called (laughs) um once they interact with the body they're able to move on with their lives they're able to keep going and keep living and I think that that is something that's being robbed from us as a society and as a culture Mm -hmm. and not again not because there's this whole big you know evil conspiracy of like we're trying to keep everybody in grief and we're, you know, there's some (laughs) evil man in a big hat behind a curtain pulling all the strings, you know? Right. Yeah. It's just that economically it's, it's really smart to be like, Hey, I got this. Just pay me some money Mm -hmm. and I'll take care of it. And for some people it works. Some people don't want to, and don't need to interact with the bodies of their loved ones. That's the beauty of being human is our individuality. Mm-hmm. but those who do and those who would benefit from it often don't get the chance because they don't know they have the chance or they don't even know that it's something they can do right you know there's a lot of misconceptions about laws regarding dead bodies a lot of people think that it's illegal to want to hold awake in your home it's illegal to be there with the body of your loved one as it's going into the crematorium it, uh, there's a lot of misconceptions about that mm. Yeah, I'm having this image in my mind that it's like a memory I have of something I saw on TV when I was like young, and it was like, really had an impression on me. And it mm-hmm. was, I think it was Oprah, because I watched a lot of Oprah. <laughs> I don't know why, <laughs> but I did. <laughs> <laughs> but like, this woman's husband died in a car crash, and it was so tragic. And I don't there there couldn't have been video unless there was CCTV of it but she may have explained and then I visualized it where right. like his body was on the sidewalk and she was like you know screaming and crying and hugging him and people were tearing mm-hmm. her away and, yeah. and you know and being like no you got to go you got to go no no I don't want to go you can't like, touch him they wouldn't even let her have like 2 minutes and mm-hmm. it's like of course you want to like hug and like 
you know, he just died. He's right there. And they're like, no, 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 no. And they're like dragging her away. And I feel like that's just going to make it a million times more traumatic for her. That literally they tore him away from her when there was already nothing they could do to save him. So why Mm -hmm. are you tearing him away from her? And I, that didn't really register about how that doesn't make sense until like I talked to you and I'm like, that's Mm -hmm. like, it's, just, it's very logic doesn't it's make sense. Very, very culturally ingrained in in American culture specifically, but also Western culture as a whole, that the living do not interact with the dead, and that's a lot of the times uh, that a lot of the times that that's that's the reason behind the whole like creepy mortician stereotype or like you know if you tell somebody you work in a funeral home or you tell someone you're a mortician, you know. Imagine how, how would someone react to that? You know, someone would be like, oh my God, that's terrible. That's so, that's like scary. That's gross. Like what kind of person chooses to do that? Yeah, there is definitely a stereotype of a creepy. There's a stereotype that there's, you expect a certain kind of person to go into that job. And that's like a creepy old man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it is a cultural phenomenon for, for us to be, like you said, tearing people away from, from their dead. Um, And I also want to clarify that I'm not trying to advocate for pushing people towards their dead either. Um, I'm just a huge advocate for a person's ability to choose Mm -hmm. how they want to interact with the bodies of their loved ones. Um, cause I remember being a child and being at the funeral of my grandparents, you know, I remember the, the one I remember the most was, um, one of my grandmothers and, you know, because I'm the grandchild, I was like up front with the rest of the family. And there was a moment where all of the grandkids were going up and kissing her forehead. And I was terrified. I didn't want to do any, I didn't want to be near her. I didn't want to touch her because it didn't look like her. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, very uncanny valley kind of thing. Um, and that also plays into it, the the whole evolutionary thing. I have a whole thing about the uncanny valley. Wait, what's the uncanny valley? Um, so the uncanny valley is that uncomfortable reaction you get when you see something that's like kind of human, but not quite. Um the the most popular example of it that I can think of is the animation from the Polar Express. Oh yes, um, yes. You know, oh how my it kind of, like it's it's human enough that you recognize it, but it's uh, not human enough that it's creepy as hell and makes you uncomfortable. <laughs> yes. And and uh-huh. and corpses are. It's been theorized that corpses are are the origination of the Uncanny Valley, which is we're not supposed to be super comfortable around them. Um, Mm. because, you know, as they decompose, they can breed disease and, and like parasites and attract like lots of vermin that you don't really want around living people, but that's the whole gist of it. But I, I do, I vividly, vividly remember being so upset that I had to go up and and kiss my grandmother's forehead because I wasn't ready for it. Oh, Um, yeah. And I was a kid and it was expected of me and everybody was watching and I didn't want to do it. And I mean, I ended up doing it because I was a kid and the grownups were telling me to do it. But, you know, that that really upset me. And even later on in life, I'm like, wow, that's a little messed up. Like, I still I don't have any bad memories of her. I don't you know, 
I don't associate that memory with her specifically. Mm-hmm. I associate it with complicating my ability to deal with her passing because I was already in a very vulnerable state. And then I had that experience, which upset me even more. Yeah, that is really upsetting. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was very well-intentioned. It was very much like, you go kiss your grandmother. This is going to be the last time you get to do that. And it's like a respect thing. And it's like a family thing and whatever. But being forced to do something that you don't want to do when you're grieving and especially when it involves the physical body of your loved one can have such an adverse effect on the grief process. Yeah, I mean, it's it's complicated too because um, when my friend Lauren passed away, it was closed mm-hmm. casket. I don't know the reasoning behind it. There could have been a million reasons. Um, but in a way that meant that like me hearing about her death was more of an abstract concept you know it's like I heard that she passed away and then I go to a funeral and I see this wooden box and I'm told that she's inside of it and so it's like in a way my my brain like I totally felt like I was outside of reality like it didn't feel like real life it felt like a nightmare It's possible that that made the grief worse. I have no idea because I also would have been very upset to see her lying there dead. So I don't know which one would be better, to be honest. I mean, they would they both like have their different um, like reactions. But um, yeah, I don't know. That's just something I've been thinking about how that could have affected Mm -hmm. the grieving. Yeah, it's it's very different when we have a more abstract idea of what's happened to somebody. Um, especially if it's something sudden, like your friend where you, you know, it wasn't like she had this illness, you know, that she had been battling for a long time and you were sort of expecting it to happen. It was a very sudden event. So to, to you, you know, she was alive and then she was gone Mm -hmm. and it wasn't just that she was dead. She was gone because you didn't get to see her. Yeah, it was just you like a, dis- a, a total disappearance of her from the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that that is tricky, is very tricky. Um, because sometimes closed caskets are necessary, especially mm-hmm. if the body's undergone um, like a severe amount of trauma that really can't be fixed um, mm-hmm. to be presentable enough. Because... Sometimes, you know, whatever a body goes through can be, it can be more traumatic to see that than to, oh, yeah. you know, see the closed casket. But at the same time, it's like a lose-lose situation. You know, you're going to get messed up either way. It's either going to be that ambiguous loss of being told that they're gone and having to believe that they're gone, but not being able to actually see the proof or being able to see the proof, but being traumatized by how horrible and gory or whatever that -hmm. proof might be. So what did the research, uh, from what you found, why is it that it is, the research suggests that that proof is, can be helpful? So when we talk about the proof of someone being dead, being helpful, I like to describe 
grief as like a ball and your brain is a box. And in the beginning, your brain is quite small. The box is quite small and the ball is quite big and it keeps bumping around. And every time it bumps a surface, every time it bumps the inside of the box, you're hurting. And you're back in that, in that very first deep, deep, sorrowful pain. But as time goes on, the box around the ball grows and it hits the sides less and less often. Mm-hmm. It's never going to stop hitting the sides of that box. You're always going to have moments where you go back to that place and you're hurting and you're in pain. But it will happen less and less often and you'll have time to grow around it and learn how to deal with it. In studies of pet owners, there, there have been studies of pet owners who have least recently lost pets. And in those studies, there are two conditions. There are pet owners who viewed and interacted with their pets' bodies, and there are pet owners who did not. So if someone was taking their dog to be put down and they couldn't bring themselves to be in the room with it, and then, you know, the animal go get, goes to get cremated and all they get back is a bag of ashes um, versus someone who's in the room with their dog while it's being put down, sits with it, and then lets it go. Mm-hmm. Um there's this phenomenon of false cues where, you know, it, 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 the most normal thing I can compare it to is like the phantom phone ringing where you like think you hear your phone ringing or buzzing or vibrating and you check it and nothing's actually happened. Mm-hmm. That tends to happen with people we've lost. Well, you know, sometimes we'll think, oh my gosh, did I just hear their footsteps? Did I just hear their keys in the door? With pets, oftentimes it's, did I hear the jingling of their collar? Did I hear the meow? Did I hear a bark? And pet owners who interacted with their pets' bodies reported fewer of those false cues than Mm. pet owners who did not. Um, And those false cues are really significant because when you're grieving somebody and you get a cue like that and you think, oh, that's, you know, that's my friend coming into the house or that's my pet coming down the stairs. Then you're faced all over again with the realization that they are not there and the ball hits the wall of that cube again. And the more often those false cues happen, the more often you are sent back to that place of I'm in pain and I am grieving and I am hurting. Mm-hmm. The less often those false cues happen, it's it's pretty much in in colloquial terms, that's moving on or being able to grow from it. Um, The way I describe it is, you know, your box grows slower the more cues you receive because you're not able to process life without them. Mm. You're constantly being reminded. You're constantly thinking, oh, they're just around the corner, they're coming back. Whereas when you don't experience those cues, your box is able to grow and you experience the ball hitting the wall fewer times. Yeah, I could see how even though the closure is horrible, it does give you a sense of closure. Like I have Mm -hmm. been there by a cat's side when we put him down And, you know, it was with my sister and my aunt and we were sobbing and it was so emotional. But like, I also got to share that moment with them and I got to see like him, you know, slowly fall asleep. And and so in a way that was like that was closure. Um, Whereas if he just disappeared, 
and someone, you know, just says, oh, he's he's dead. He's gone. Yeah. Then I don't get that same closure. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I can definitely understand that. And I and I, I know I told you that I had a lot of dreams after my friend passed away that was part of just like me I think still even just processing like the shock lasted a really long time months and months and months and months of shock where I would I would kind of be like living in a daze like oh my god like she's dead like what and my dreams would be like you know I find her and find out that she has been alive this whole time and that she'd been faking her death and I'd run up to her and be like oh my god like thank god but I'm so mad at you for faking your death why would you do that and but also just so relieved you know kind of like I knew it I knew it wasn't true I knew it um and then just in the dreams then she would she wouldn't recognize me and then she would run off um and it was so devastating um and i i think yeah like part of that is just the fact that she just disappeared just Mm -hmm. really hard when that happens yeah and and that sort of ambiguous grief there are like different levels to it Mm -hmm. um and ambiguous grief is is a term that's used in um research when it comes to grief and bereavement um, it usually applies to um, like missing persons cases or people who have been involved in natural disasters mm-hmm. um, where their bodies couldn't be recovered, but they are presumed dead. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of cases like that have that ambiguous grief because they don't they they know and they are told and they can assume that rationally, you know, the person that they love is dead and not coming back but they don't have any physical proof. And, and like I said earlier, humans are very, very sentimental animals and we don't like accepting just ambiguous. Oh yeah, they're gone now. It's okay. It's fine. You know, they're gone. We don't know what happened, but you know, they're not here anymore. Time to move on. Yeah. Human beings aren't really wired to accept that. And in in those cases of like that, there's, even if it's like, 99.9% chance there's still a 0.1% chance they could be alive and like you're going to cling to that yeah maybe like forever and that's just going to make it so hard to process your grief because you're always going to have that thought like what if exactly and then there's also the thought of trying to move on and accept it and be like okay there's a 99% chance that they're gone I should move on and then you're faced with with the, the thought of what if I move on and they come back? Yeah. How are they going to view me then? What if they're fine and they come back and I think they're dead? Mm-hmm. How am I going to recover from that? Would I rather endure the pain of holding out hope for this tiny, tiny possibility? Or would I rather try and accept it and gain closure at the risk of them coming back and not only hurting me, but hurting them as well for, you know, being like, how could you think I was dead? You know, why didn't you wait for me? There's a lot of that. A lot of that fear really plays into the way we Mm -hmm. cope with loss. 
Yeah, and and you feel like in order to best honor them and love them would be to to hold on and stay mm-hmm. there in the grief. And I think that's true and even if you know they're dead. <laughs> you know yeah. like you know like just in general with grief, I feel like it's so hard because you know grief is love. Like it's the other side of the coin. So it makes sense that we would feel like when I'm in pain, I'm loving them as much as I can. Mm-hmm. And like while that's true and then that's a part of it, like it's tricky if that's what we think the only way to love them is because then that keeps us stuck. Yeah. It's just really tricky. It is. The whole the whole thing is very tricky and it's not made any easier by the fact that it's not commonly talked about and that anybody who's interested in it or wants to work within the death field in any capacity, either, you know, within the funeral industry, as a death doula, as someone working in palliative or hospice care, you know, trauma psychologists, anything related to that is seen as like taboo or weird or dark. And it's Mm -hmm. like, oh my God, why would you want to work in that? That's so like out there. And it's really not. It is one of the most universal experiences of the human condition. Like birth and death are two conditions Mm -hmm. that we as people are all going to experience. And any forms of life. Any forms of life. Yeah. And, and, and that is regardless of literally anything else, regardless of race, of gender, socioeconomic status, culture, anything. And the less we talk about it, the less we're able to deal with it and the more it hurts when somebody does die. And I think you mentioned um, in your paper that dying in our society is seen as an inconvenience to productivity or, or what was it? Yes, it is. I mean, I don't remember the exact quote that I wrote, but it is both a failure of the medical system as well as an inconvenience to the productivity of society. Because when mm-hmm. somebody is grieving, they can't work as well as they did. They can't participate in society the same way that they did before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the idea behind like, oh yeah, you can take a couple days off if you need to go to a funeral or something. But like, when you get back, you should be fine, right? When my other grandmother passed away, it was like two, three weeks before I graduated from high school. And I remember I had so many final projects and work that I needed to do that I went to school the day I found out that she had passed away. My dad woke me up in the morning saying, you know, grandma passed away last night and we'd been expecting it for a while, you know, so I wasn't totally blown away by it, Mm -hmm. but I just sort of thought, okay, but I have work to do. Like I have shit that I need to get done. And I had put myself under so much pressure to perform even as a kid, even in school Mm -hmm. that I didn't let myself take that time 
until my family left to go to her funeral in New York. Um, and I had to. I pretty much pushed myself through that initial phase of grief and put it off for a couple of days so I could finish up a couple papers, you know? And mm-hmm. I, I would be fairly confident in guessing that I'm not the only one who's done that. Oh, heck no. At any point in time, you know? Definitely not. I mean, we don't even, we also don't even get that many days off. So it's like you would mm-hmm. have to use your vacation days to even get like a yeah. couple weeks off work. And then I would, I, I might posit that a couple weeks isn't even enough. Um, no. Especially if it's someone who was really close. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, we just need to take that time. And, and there's definitely a balance that needs to be struck mm-hmm. because for some people having a routine can be really helpful in dealing with grief. Right. And part of that right. routine can be work or school, mm-hmm. but you can't assume that that works for everybody. Mm-hmm. And again, it all comes back to being able to have that choice of being able to say, hey, I need to take some time to myself. I need to stay home and I need to sleep or I need to be with myself. I need to work through what I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, the people have to be able to have that choice. And most people don't. They get a couple days and then it's like, all right, back to work. You're, you know, yeah, you had a you had a person die. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, you grieved. Now you're done. And that's not how it works. Like I said, there's a ball in a box and it keeps hitting that wall and it doesn't stop. Right. I still have moments, you know, like I, my my last grandmother died when I was 18, I think. And I'm 24 now. And, you know, it's not like a huge amount of time, but I still have moments where I'm just hit with this awful sinking feeling of like. None of them ever got to see me graduate from high school. Mm. None of them ever got to see me start college. None of them saw me graduate from college. And I see my friends with their grandparents and God bless my friends. They're so sweet and their grandparents are so sweet. And I've had moments like there was one moment this summer I was visiting my boyfriend and I met his grandparents and like they made us cookies and I went fishing with his grandfather and he taught me how to fish. And that was so cool. And then I got home or I got back to my boyfriend's place and I burst into tears Mm -hmm. because I hadn't had an experience like that for years. I hadn't had that feeling of a grandparent, which is a very specific kind of relationship and feeling, you know, and it's, it is very odd to, uh, to have lost that at a point in time where I'm not a child, but I wasn't an adult yet. Mm, Yeah. You know, and you're, you usually, you know, grandparents aren't, they don't stick around for ages and ages and ages, you know, there's the whole, you know, there's generational gaps, but it was very weird for me specifically because all of my friends still had theirs oh and I was constantly being reminded of it and seeing it 
And I don't know, just spending time with my boyfriend's grandparents was like, oh, like they're treating me like a granddaughter. Yeah, I I can absolutely see that. And it's also like a reminder of what you're missing because it's in the busyness of life, we're able to momentarily forget what we so desperately miss. And Mm -hmm. then, yeah, we have those moments that remind us like one trigger is that like, a lot of people will just casually in conversation say, oh, yeah, me and my best friend, blah, 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 blah. And just, you know, and but I zero in on that. Not that people aren't my best friend, but that after her death, I got scared to use that word because I'm still figuring out what it means. And Mm -hmm. just it's just really complicated. And so I just I envy people who are able to like kind of flippantly use it. And be like, I have a best friend and I saw her yesterday and I'll see her again next week and I'll see her for years and years until we're 80. Like, it just makes me so angry and also really sad and kind of like, oh, man, I like I wish I didn't have such complicated feelings about it and that I I feel like I'm not able to to say that. Yeah. 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 And it's incredible how grief affects our connections to very mundane, ordinary things Mm -hmm. and how it can hit at seemingly unprovoked times. You know, I can't see Cardinals without thinking of my grandfather. You know, uh, every time I see a yellow rose, I think of my grandmother. It's these like really strange, very mundane things that, you know, other people would be like, oh, that's, that's nice. That's a thing. But to, to you and your specific experience, that is so much more meaningful. And we often aren't aware of that, of the specificities that come with grief. Oh, yeah. It's often referred to as like this big overarching umbrella term, just this big mass of generalized pain. Right. But it can get very, very specific. What would you say is like, the main takeaway that you learned when through your research? Wow. Biggest takeaway I got personally was mm-hmm. working through my own grief through academia. And that's oh. not surprising for me. I'm very scientifically and factually oriented. I'm a very clinically thinking person. It was a very much like this sort of, I can sit down at my desk and I can read this and I can relate it to my own experiences. Mm -hmm. And that was really cool for me. I mean, the biggest takeaway that I would like to tell other people Mm -hmm. is that you have a choice and you have the ability to advocate for yourself when you're going through that process and trying to deal with not only the grief of losing your loved one, but the super shitty bureaucratic technical stuff that comes with figuring out what to do with their body. Yeah, you always have a choice. There's always a choice. Thanks for listening. Friends Missing Friends is produced by me, Hannah Rumsey. Sound engineering is by co-producer Eric Siegling. Original music is also by Eric, featuring The Lost Wayne. Artwork is by Heidi James. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Together, 
we can cherish and remember the friends we miss. See you next time.